is uh, Salman Singh. I'm uh, one of the founders of Doctors for Patients UK. I've been a GP since 2019 and working mainly in Northwest London with an interest in native medicine. And I've become somewhat obsessed by what has unfolded over the last two years. Um, doctors for Patients UK was set up in collaboration with fellow doctors with the objective of creating a platform for open and honest discussions for doctors on various aspects of healthcare, where we can challenge and scrutinize the evidence and ethics of our daily practice. And in doing so, serve our patients and public with the safest and most effective ways of dealing with ill health. The last few years has been strange and unprecedented in so many ways. COVID seems to have shifted long-standing norms of society, public health, and the practice of medicine, which many doctors have found disconcerting. Ideas, free speech, and open discussion has been confined to a small set of acceptable ideas, which contradicts the natural curiosity of people and the principles of science. So science, which is in, in essence, a field of skepticism, questioning, and relearning. I'm sure you all know that the science can never be settled. It's a contradiction of terms. And as science and medicine are so closely interrelated, we feel it is necessary to be inquisitively skeptical. So we may come to know what works and what doesn't and help our patients based on the best available evidence. So we hope to broaden the scope of discussion around what has been the prevailing narrative by examining the evidence and analyzing the policies around COVID, such as lockdowns, masking, testing, early treatments, vaccinations, and various other measures that were taken. We want to provide a platform for doctors to share their knowledge, experience, and concerns in a professional setting away from the emotion and vitriol, which is so often induced by these discuss discussing such topics. We will be having various speakers to present on a specific aspect of COVID each week, followed by a question and answer session with the attending doctors. The idea is to mimic a weekly grand round setting for doctors and review the latest evidence. We're aiming to have six presentations over the next six weeks and then hopefully continue on from there um, as there's a lot to cover. Can I kindly request to be mindful of other participants in the group and try to keep questions brief and towards the end of the presentation. Uh, we encourage a back and forth if needed, but it'd be nice if more people could contribute. Um, and please, at the end, please do get in touch with your email addresses so we can invite you to future meetings and help us grow as a community of like-minded doctors with similar aims. Um, we've just set up a website, it's called doctorsforpatientsuk.com and our email address is doctorsforpatientsuk at proton.me. And that's for F-O-R, not the number four. Uh, so our first guest is Dr. Ross Jones, a retired pediatrician and a founding member and contributor for the Health and Advisory Group, better known as the Heart Group. She has been amongst those who have contributed immensely to try and bring a more balanced and sensible dialogue around vaccinating children for COVID. She has helped to get us set up and running and we thank her for, for her efforts and for her support of our group. Looking forward to your presentation, Ross. Uh, so if you're ready, you can just begin your presentation. Lovely. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed. It's, it's um, a pleasure to be the first speaker in this. So um, hopefully, I think they thought, they didn't know how many people would come. So better start with somebody who wouldn't mind if there were only 10 of us, which there are. But next week, there'll be even more, I'm sure. So what I will do is share screen, hopefully, if that works. And I'll go to slideshow from the beginning. Um, is that okay? Can people see that generally? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
um, as someone said, I, I'm a member of heart. Um, I was a general pediatrician, mostly with interest in neonatal intensive care. Um, and also I looked after patients with HIV and I was the joint sort of immunization lead in combination with the community pediatrician, my opposite neighbor in the community. And also for my sins, I was involved in pandemic planning for the swine flu, which was quite interesting because a lot of Neil Ferguson's modeling then uh, sounded very familiar when it came up this time. Um, and it didn't work out quite like that then either. Um, so what I've been asked to do, we thought something very, what I thought would be very non-controversial, but even this hasn't been really, is the question of do children need COVID-19 vaccines? And in discussing that, obviously talking a bit about informed consent and balance of risk, because this is crucially important for everything we're doing. Um, but before I start talking about that, I thought I should just look briefly at how the pandemic has affected children generally, because we knew right from the kickoff that this was not a disease of children. It was obvious from China and from Italy that the main people, to, victims of this were going to be the elderly and the frail. And yet as a society, we somehow, we allowed ourselves to close schools, what should have been, you know, face-to-face -face friendship groups and, and team sports, turned in when they did get back to school to being masked in schools. Um, not many workers were told, you know, we might have had to wear a mask to pop into a shop for 10 minutes, but the staff did not have to wear masks. So to have to wear a mask for eight hours a day in class wasn't great. And also parents were pick up and drop off by a lot of primary schools, despite that never being a requirement from the government for adults to wear masks out of doors in any other circumstance. They did in some countries, but certainly not in the UK. And then even when we got to the rule of two, you remember those weeks when you weren't allowed to see anyone if you lived alone, tough bananas. But then you could meet a friend for a walk. But if you're too young to go out on your own, then obviously you and your mum or dad or carer, that is your group of two. So if you went to meet your friend and they had their mum or carer, that's four. So it wasn't allowed. So right from the word go. And then there were the awful things like don't be your granny when it came to social distancing and masking and so on. Um, and I, it's relevant to what we're going to say coming back to vaccination. Um, so just a quick bit about the health impact of children. I, I think it's been very obvious to anybody working in the front line, really. But over 90s, we're talking about 50,000 per million. So that's 5%, 5.5% 5 .5 of over 90s died of COVID. You know, and I think most people would think it was far higher. And it goes down, oops, sorry, um, down very steeply uh, by age, as you might expect. And if you remember Patrick Vallance, quite early on when they were, before the vaccine rollout had even arrived, they were talking about it. And at the beginning, they put it into these categories to go down the age groups over 80s over 75s healthcare professionals obviously came in quite early but really by the time they vaccinated all the over 50s and any significant health vulnerability that was going to cover 99 percent of the deaths in the first wave so these very small numbers of deaths down here mostly will have had severe comorbid and if you look at children there was a study for the whole year march 2020 to march 2021 so that actually included, it had the late April, May, March, April, May wave from 2020 and the early sort of January, February wave of 2021. 
and there were 60 cases with a death within 28 days positive PCR. But when they were all notes reviewed, and of course child deaths are rare, so they are routinely reviewed anyway. Um, and there were only 25 deaths, and the others were thought to be nothing to do with COVID at all. It could have been a car accident. And 25 deaths where COVID was either the main or a significant contributing cause. And that works out at one in half a million. But of those 25, 19 had severe pre-existing conditions. And these are not asthma. You know, people were talking about shielding asthmatics. There wasn't a death of a child with asthma. There wasn't a death of a child with cystic fibrosis. There wasn't a death of a child with Down syndrome. A lot of talk about uh, learning difficulties and vaccinating everybody on the special needs register. The only child with Down syndrome who died had a complex congenital heart defect as well. And if you looked at the learning difficulties, they were mostly children with, say, spastic quadriplegia who had a kyphoscoliosis and um, had been in and out of paediatric intensive care with pneumonia in the past. So if you looked at the risk of death for the healthy under 18s, it's one in. Obviously, that's just talking about deaths, but the same goes for every aspect, whether it's hospital admissions or intensive care or long COVID, everything in children is milder. Um, so if we just come to this balance, because this is what it's really all about, um, and anybody who prescribes knows that um, it's very important that the disease is worse than the cure and not the other way around. So if you're in a situation where you've got somebody in front of you with quite a nasty disease and you've got the BNF in front of you and you know there's some side effects, but they're relatively trivial, that's great. You've got a useful drug in a situation where the disease is definitely worse than the cure. Um, and I suspect we do a fair amount of prescribing in this situation where really it probably doesn't make much difference whether you do prescribe or you don't to the overall outcome. Um, and that, of course, is not good for the NHS budget. It's a complete waste of money. But more problematic is this, the situation where clearly the cure is worse than the disease. And so that's a dangerous drug. And usually that might get picked up during the trial phase, but it might not because some of these will be severe side effects, which are rare, but because they're severe, they can outweigh perhaps what was a relatively mild disease. So then you're in a situation that the post-marketing um, surveillance picks up a, a significant problem. And that's what the black triangle in the BNF is all about. That for the first two years, any new drug, you're meant to yellow card it, whether you think it's related or not, whatever, if somebody's just had a vaccine or a drug, a new drug on the list, and they come in with something that you wonder about, just put it on the list. Um, and of course, then when these things get put together, they asked regularly being either restricted ser seriously or withdrawn. Um, now, you could say AstraZeneca, they've restricted it to over 50s, but, um, uh, you know, that took quite a lot of doing and other countries doing it first and the MRA saying it was all because they hated us because of Brexit or something. Um, anyway, but this is the situation we're in now. So pandemics for the swine flu was withdrawn because of narcolepsy, picked up again by Scandinavia, UK. Um, but very few deaths, and yet it was withdrawn. And here we are with a lot of deaths out there, and we're still not. Now, this is rather a lot in here, but it's just to give you a sort of quick chronology of what I've been up to, because February 2021, sort of like two months into the adult rollout, I was just watching the early evening news, local news, and there was Oxford advertising for children to join the AstraZeneca trial. 
And I was horrified because as a pediatrician, I've done research, controlled trials are a nightmare to get past ethics. It, you can't do children's trials unless it's a disease that really only affects children and it's severe. And, you know, the potential treatment is going to be for their benefit. So I contacted Andrew Pollard, who I work with because I'm in the same region. And he replied straight away. Oh, hello, Ros. Yes, you're quite right. We don't know it's safe. That's why we're doing the trial. And it's only a pilot study just looking at antibody response. And if it works well, then we would set up a proper you know, suitably powered, statistically powered study for looking for safety and efficacy. Um, and there definitely won't be any rollouts to children this year. Well, it was only about in April 21 that Adam Finn, who's another member of the JCVI, was jumping up and down in the press saying, you know, as soon as we finish the rollout to adults, we need to go straight to children, because if we don't, there'll be upward pressure on adults for infection. So that's beginning, again, to not only raise alarm bells of safety in my head, but also alarm bells about ethics, because the implication of that is that you're going to vaccinate children to protect adults, not for their own protection. And we'll... um, so and we've, I got a group together. We've had about 100 of you know, senior medics and academics. We've written endless letters, which some of you have kindly signed. Um, and we wrote to the MHRA in the middle of May when the FDA had approved Pfizer um, and we got no reply um, and no reply and no reply until they replied an hour after they'd announced they were authorising it and then of course the reply was simply we've looked thoroughly and it's safe and effective. Now we they did have to publish what information they'd used for that decision and all they had used was the Pfizer children's trial which included 1100 vaccinated children this, to my mind, is a not a very good basis for safe and effective for treating a disease that for children is mild. Um, and then I think to the dismay of the MHRA and particularly of Sajid Javid, who wanted to hit the ground running with their school rollout, um, the CPR sat on it. And six weeks later, they announced they did not recommend it for healthy under 18s. But they said it can, they can vaccinate 17 three months before their 18th birthday. And I was a bit puzzled by that because I thought usually you're either you are 18 or you're not. But anyway, of course, then that evening I was listening to the dreaded, um, um, you know, press conference. And there was Boris announcing that they were going to introduce vaccine passports in September. So that meant if you wanted to go clubbing on your 18th birthday, you had to have your first dose three months beforehand and your second dose two months after that. So that gave you still another month for it to, to work and you could get your vaccine pass ready to go clubbing. Um, and that, at that point, they had a major push for 18 to 25. Vaccination centres were popping up at the Ministry of Sound, a nightclub and a park, theme park near us. And at Charlton Athletic, they were even offering free football tickets to the first thousand to come for a pop-up vaccine centre there. Um, and that went on. And interesting, I've looked through all the minutes of the JCVI meetings, and I'll give you some references if you're really keen to read them. They don't make happy reading because the meeting here, there was, a, you know, obviously was minuted this one where they said they weren't recommending it. Um, and the following week, they had another meeting and it was minuted at that, that two days after this meeting, 
they had been asked to call an emergency meeting by the chief medical officer to reconsider. So in other words, they hadn't given the right answer. They were asked to look again. So they looked again, and at that point, they thought, well, okay, to do something to get them off their back. So they recommended it for 16 to 17s. There was no new data since they said it wasn't suitable for under 18s. Now it is, but interesting dose. And in the minutes, there were lots of concerns about myocarditis and particularly about the fact that myocarditis was more common the younger you were, like in the, you know, 16 to 19 seemed to be the worst age group. And also it was more common after the second dose. So let's just give one dose. But even that wasn't good enough for the, whoever's pushing this. And so in September, they had another meeting and they again repeated this balance of benefit and risk does not support vaccinating healthy 12 to 15s. Um, they had made it very clear quite early on that, of course, this doesn't apply to children with severe vulnerabilities. If your pediatrician and the parents between you think that this child is at serious risk from the vaccine, you could always give that under um, compassionate grounds. You didn't need to, to roll this out to all healthy children in order to let the children with problems who wanted it have it. Um, so then we got to the point where they said, oh, well, you know, the JCPI thought maybe the CMOs would like to look at wider societal things. Um, and I'm sure you remember that the CMOs came out with the idea. By then it was realized that schools was bad for not only education, but also mental health. So let's um, give them vaccines to help keep them at school. But they did agree that they don't act. They said they were going to save 140,000 school days by vaccinating kids. That worked out at 15 minutes per child. Well, you have to sit in the hall for an extra 15 minutes after your vaccine. And they made no account of side effects of the vaccines. And there was good work from the original trials and from the data coming out of the states that, you know, eight to 10 percent of children miss a one or two days of school following the vaccine. So, you know, the idea that this was going to reduce school loss was ludicrous. Of course, the main reason for the school loss was actually the rules about being quarantined as well as the index case. So come uh, back in July, when they were saying, no, let's not do this, there were a million children out of school of whom 90% didn't have COVID. They were simply contacts of ones who, again, weren't ill. They just had to do testing. So that's where we were. Um, and this is the sort of data they had to look at. This is from the FDA. Um, so this was available um, at the, in the middle of August. ACVI would have had this data. So the males, um, the, the red are the, where they're significantly higher than backgrounds. This is the number of cases of myocarditis you would expect in a million people of that age group in any seven day period. And this is how many actually happened in the seven days post-vaccination. So as you can see, the boys, 18 to 24 year old boys, have got a, you know quite a significant increase in risk. The girls, not so clear, uh, nothing after the first dose, so it's not on the table, but after the second dose, a bit of an increase. And for the boys after the second dose, we are, oh, sorry, doing that. We are way up, we're at 134 cases against a background risk of one to seven. Uh, so this is what we're talking about. And this is when they just say safe and effective. And they don't allow for the fact that, yes, down here at 65 plus, it is less than or no different. It's not increased over expected. But that's not the same as saying this is safe for everybody. 
Um, so that's the sort of thing. So Marcard, like this US, that data I've just shown you was what came up with this one in 9,000 approximately. Um, but Israel, where, which is where it was originally described, they looked um, and having found this signal, they then notified all pediatricians, all emergency departments, all the cardiologists. They were all notified and said, please look out for this and report it. So they then came up with one in 6,000, so a bit more. And it's clear, again, difference in age. So for the over 30s, it was one in 72,000 against one in 6,000 for the under 20s. So you've got a tenfold difference in, in myocarditis in one direction. But at the same time, you would have a tenfold difference in severity of COVID in the other direction. So you'd almost have a the balance of benefit risk would be a hundredfold different between a 35-year-old and a 15-year-old. Now, Hong Kong, they didn't roll their vaccine out till quite a bit later, by which time all the data had come already from Israel. So they gave leaflets out at the beginning, and they also told children and their parents that they should do no strenuous exercise for a week after vaccine. Have we told anybody here that? You know, that's quite, a, that's quite a thing to say, isn't it? It's perfectly safe, but you mustn't do any exercise for a week. Um, and then more recently, and I mean, this is just last week, and it's a, a preprint, and I can't absolutely guarantee it, but it is from a, a, a bona fide team at Bangkok University, and they have done what we should have done here um, a year ago, which is they have prospectively, they've two, two secondary schools, they've given them diary cards, and they've brought them back for troponin levels and ECGs on day three, day seven, and day 14. And with that, they found seven cases of myocarditis amongst their 200 and whatever school children. It was one in 45. Now, some of those, three of them were symptomatic, but four of them were picked up by the fact that their troponin levels were above the 99th centile. Um, and so these are subclinical cases. We have no idea. Are we setting up some sort of time bomb for cardiac health for the next generation? But if you look at the MRHA data, it keeps describing it as mild and it goes away. But there have been deaths reported from the States, very definitely. Um, and there's a big series from the States with MRI cardiac scans, and they found 90% of them with changes suggesting scarring on the so-called late gadolinium enhancement on those, on those uh, scans. And they were in the JCVI were in a, a conference call with this team in the States, who I've also had a conference call on behalf of Heart. People have been amazingly helpful, the Israeli team, all of these. You just contact them and say, could we talk about your data? Um, so, but basically, they are doing a follow-up, but they haven't done it yet. So in the JCVI minutes, they've said they would like to have six months follow-up data before they made a decision, which sounds not unreasonable. So what about natural immunity? Well, we spent the first year being told that natural immunity wouldn't work. It would be complete rubbish, which is a bit odd because I think it'd be hard to make a vaccine if there was no good natural immunity to try and copy. Um, and now we're in the situation where we're recommending the vaccine to young children, despite the fact that 99% of them are now estimated to have had it. And that's come from the um, MRC Biostatistics Unit in Cambridge that provide the data for SAGE. So this isn't just sort of off the top of my head anecdotes from our local school. And moreover, there's now good evidence that natural immunity is robust, durable, it's broad, it's broader than 
um, the vaccine because it's covering the, all of, the whole of the virus and not just the spike protein. We also know that vaccination post-infection, you get more adverse events. So here we are, we're already thinking these kids haven't got much to gain anyway, and then we're going to give them worse adverse events than were seen in the trials, because in the trials you were excluded if you'd had COVID. And now we're actually specifically saying all these children who've had COVID, we want to vaccinate them. There's also been some studies suggesting that if you get infection after, I mean, most of the kids have had COVID already, but for the ones who haven't, are we helping them either? Because if you get your infection after vaccination, you don't get such good um, immunity. You tend to produce more spike antibodies. You just focus on the thing you'd already learned to do and you don't look at the whole virus. And so you don't get the in antibodies that are part of the wider, broader immune response. Um, and so on T cell function, etc. The other thing, of course, we know is that vaccine efficacy is waning over time, especially it's poor against Omicron. And yes, there's some waning of natural immunity, but it appears to be lasting much better. Uh, all the studies that I've managed to find have suggested that. I'll just say a brief word about mRNA technology. Um, the, you know, when you say something's experimental, it, it's a huge red rag to a bull, isn't it? Now you're a conspiracy theorist. But the fact is these vaccines have not been used. This technology has not been used in human scale. There have been some attempts to make some cancer vaccines that Pfizer were looking at and haven't actually got to market, I don't think. Um, the mRNA that they've used incorporating the code for the spike protein, despite the fact that the spike protein is the bit of the virus that seems to be the most damaging. So that's the bit that's in the vaccine. So that seemed to me not terribly helpful. And also there are no pharmacokinetic studies. So if you give somebody hepatitis antigen in a hep B vaccine, let's say, that is a, a measured amount of hepatitis protein, then you make antibodies to it. But this, there might be a measured amount of mRNA, but we have no idea how much spike protein any individual will make. And there's no data to tell you anything about the variation between do children make spike protein better or worse than the elderly? Who knows? Nobody. And then the other thing is, of course, that they're packaged in lipid nanoparticles. And that's deliberate because these, this vaccine has been designed to cross cell membranes because you've got to get the MRA, M, sorry, mRNA into the cell in order for the ribosomes to take it up and decide to make spike protein against which you will then make your antibody response. So we know that they cross cell membranes. And again, there have been no human biodistribution studies at all, but there were some animal studies um, that got leaked from the lab in Japan, the Pfizer lab in Japan. Ooh. The suggestion was that it would all um, just be in your arm for half a day and then it would be gone. And we know that we can find spike protein in regional lymph nodes 60 days post vaccination and probably longer. So that's just a little bit about why people, I think, were not so surprised to see that if you look at the VAERS mortality data, this is 2021 compared with all the previous years put together. And, you know, this, this is it's hard to say that this is coincidence. And we know that VAERS and yellow cards underreport. Um, I think it's highly likely that this vaccine is a lot more dangerous than many vaccines we've had in recent years. But one of the problems, of course, is that the Pfizer trials, right from the beginning, they asked permission to 
to vaccinate all the controls. And that was rather irregular too, because usually you would have kept your controls for at least a year, if not two years. So we're waiting for these two year studies, phase three trials to complete, but they actually won't have any more information than they had at the six month point, by which time quite a lot of the, the um, controls had already been vaccinated. And I think they virtually all have now. Um, this is just a, a thing on the concern that um, from when last summer, when they first agreed on the vaccination of teenagers, this is boys aged five, 15 to 19 and the excess mortality. This is previously the, the whole of the first half of last year. We'd simply been tracking the normal five year rolling average. And then it's just been deviating away. We've been to court and they have agreed that there is a statistically significant increase in all cause mortality. These are not COVID deaths, they're non-COVID deaths, but they are not investigating it. They said they would investigate if the signal got stronger. So I don't know what that means. Um, just to remind us about the GMC and the principles of decision making and consent, um, the decision making is an ongoing process focused on meaningful dialogue. Well, that's not exactly how it works in the vaccine hub, is it? I think and an exchange of relevant information specific to individual patients, to the individual patient. And it's interesting because we've written a lot of these letters to the regulators and we've never really had any sensible result, replies. They reply just quoting back at us what we've already told them, but just saying, but we've looked at all the evidence and it's safe and effective and no, not with any proper evidence. But the GMC gave us a very thorough reply in which they agreed that with our concerns that informed consent was possibly not being obtained and that it really was important that it was and that you have to discuss it. And you're meant to then come back, leave patients with information, let give them time to think about it. Uh, you know, this isn't somebody with a ruptured aortic aneurysm who you've just got to rush into theatre. The choice of treatment or care for patients who lack capacity, so that's children, must be of overall benefit to them. Decisions should be made in consultation with those who are close to them or advocating for them. So it must be of overall benefit to children. So we are not allowed to get consent for a treatment for somebody who can't consent for themselves to say, oh, I'll do this for other people. You can adults can do that. They can make a choice as, an, as a 40 year old. You can get vaccinated to protect your 80 year old mother. But you can't expect your 10 year old child to be vaccinated to protect granny, which is what we're talking about. And then also they were very clear that the potential benefits and the risks of harm, all adverse events that were common must be told, but any severe adverse events that were rare must also be explained. And also any uncertainties, because one of the things I'd raised with the GMC was if you were, um, could we really get informed consent at all, given that there isn't actually enough information out there? And they said, oh, yes, you can, because if you've got somebody who was seriously ill and you had some novel treatment, and as long as you discussed with the patient that it was completely, you didn't know whether it worked, you didn't know the safety, and they were at death's door, then that's fine. You can do that, but you must explain the uncertainties and the likelihood of success for each option. So again, now are we explaining that the vaccine in ch children will have worn out after about 12 weeks uh, or, or sooner? And also, what's the option of taking no action? The option that you might be fine. So just to recap, in September 21, the JCVI looked at the balance and they decided it, it was there wasn't a balance of benefit over risk. I must say I would have probably put it a bit more tilted beyond that. But anyway, in fairness, they said 
Children are very mildly affected by COVID. Schools are not a major source of transmission and children are less likely to infect adults than the reverse. They were worried about myocarditis, especially in adolescents. They have no long-term data on the myocarditis victims and no long-term safety data on mRNA vaccines in general. And they've modeled the school days lost, taking no account of past immunity or of vaccine side effects. So they concluded it was too close to call. And as we know, that was overruled by the medical office, chief medical officers. And interestingly, they said one dose only. And then come November, it was simply changed to two doses. But there was, again, no evidence presented as to why they changed their minds. Um, and then we look now in July here, and I think we've got a completely different balance now because we've now got Omicron, which is even milder. We've also now got the knowledge that 99% of children have had it, whereas back last July, it was more like 35%. We also now have evidence that natural immunity is stronger as opposed to good basic science telling you it would be. We also know that the vaccines don't present infectional transmission. We know on the negative side, the vaccines are less effective against Omicron. They're waning within weeks. So we're going to say children will have to go on having boosters like the elderly. Um, we know, for example, the myocarditis rate is high. Hong Kong stopped giving the second dose. They said they would model it on the UK. And the day they said that was about a week before we then said, oh, let's give them a second dose after all. Um, and we know the amount of school missed in, in US um, primary school children um, et cetera, et cetera. And we also know about this increase in non-COVID deaths. The other worry is that vaccination may alter your immune response so that you would somehow be setting them up not to make a normal um, ongoing response to COVID as they would do if left to their own devices. So what have we done with that? We've said, oh, well, let's give a third dose for 12 to 15s and let's give a non-urgent offer of two doses for healthy 5 to 11s despite a very different balance of risk from last year when they said they didn't think it was a good idea. So that's a mystery. And if you look at what other countries are doing, I think Iceland, for example, they've got a small child population and literally they have had zero children admitted to hospital. Forget about deaths. There have certainly been no deaths. There haven't even been hospitalizations. But they then did go ahead to vaccinate and they haven't vaccinated all, but you know, two thirds of their kids have had the vaccine and they've had 107 adverse effects. And of those 11 were described as severe, that's severe enough to put you in hospital. So that's 11 gone to hospital from the vaccine against naught from COVID. And when they broke it down by age, it was particularly one in a thousand risk for 16 to 17 year olds having a severe adverse event. And that's again on a, on a voluntary um, reporting system, which they may be better at than us, but it pro probably still is, you know, I don't know what, 10%. And meanwhile, Denmark have actually now withdrawn the vaccine for healthy under 18s. They've said you can only have it if you've got a severe medical underlying condition and in consultation with your paediatrician, which is what we were arguing for all along. And their director of their board of health is on record saying that vaccinating children was a mistake. And had he known then what he knows now, he never would have recommended it. Um, so and yet what are we doing? So these are three adverts I've seen in the last two or three weeks. I think Dave Cartman may have sent me that one from Cornwall. Um, you know, so this is back to don't kill your granny. Help limit the spread of COVID-19 to elderly family members by vaccinating your child. So that is not true because we know that the vaccines in children, that the efficacy, the protection against infection has gone to negative by six weeks. 
So what on earth are we talking about? And then you've got the other alternative to, you know, appealing to their better instincts to want to not kill granny. And you're telling them they're all superheroes, etc. And, you know, here's one again, proud to be in that number. I got the COVID vaccine for my friends. I'm proud to be in that number. I got the COVID vaccine for my family. So this is, is not great. And I just remind you about the Nuremberg Code because it was 75 years ago on Saturday um, that the um, Nuremberg Code was, was established. And it's a voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. The person involved must have legal capacity to give consent and be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, um, overreaching or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, etc., etc. And also it specifically says this is a personal duty and responsibility which may not be delegated to another with impunity. Um, so I just today I rang the MDU out of interest because I've sent all these letters to all sorts of people 